your wake-up call, pal. Go to work. the alarm. Hey, oh, the market temperature's changing. I know, I know. And while a week doesn't make a trend, pay attention when the market bends up and to the right. Yeah, sentiment's still tight, but look at all that money flowing back into stocks, out of oil, out of rocks. Is this a bottom or just a stop on the way down into the den where the bears ain't your friend, where risky assets are getting mauled and crypto's getting kicked like a ball into the wall until the air comes out? Hear me whisper, hear me shout, because it's about time in the markets, not timing the markets, staying in the game, even through the pain. Take advantage of these gains. They don't come very often, I must confess. So take your seats and let's ride on the Investopedia Express. Rally around the green flag. Investors flipped the switch last week and started buying stocks big time. The S&P 500 jumped 6% last week for its best one-week gain since November of 2020. That was an election week, you might recall. Not only that, Sentiment Trader points out that the market traded higher during regular trading hours from the open to the close on all five trading days. No late-day sell-offs or 800-point swings from green to red, just a steady drumbeat higher. The Dow also climbed more than 6%, snapping an eight-week losing streak that matched the longest weekly stretch of declines since the Great Depression. How about that NASDAQ? It popped 6.8% as growth finally got a little break. Is this a bear trap or a bottoming? If you look at the money flows last week, investors are behaving like it's the latter. According to Bank of America Research, more than $28 billion flowed in equities last week, the largest amount in 10 weeks. And a lot of that money flowed into consumer stocks. $8.3 billion came out of bonds, especially high yield and emerging market debt. It's been a rough 100 days of trading so far in 2022. In fact, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at LPL Financial, last Thursday was the 100th trading day of the year, and it was the worst first 100 days for the S&P 500 since 1970. For the Dow, it was the fourth worst 100-day start to the year ever. Only 1932 in the teeth of the Great Depression, 1940 at the start of World War II, and 1970 in the middle of the Vietnam War were worse. What usually happens after really bad starts to the year? Well, most of the time, the stock market pops an average of 19.1% compared with the average rest of the year gain of 5%. Yeah, it's been a rough start, but would you take a gain of 19% for the overall market for the rest of the year? We can't guarantee that's going to happen, of course, but we can make sure we're appropriately positioned given historical trends. When we look inside intermarket trends, we can't ignore what's happening to the dollar and the impact it's having on stocks right now. When the dollar's strong, stocks and cryptocurrencies are under pressure. There's strong correlation there. Look back at 2018 if you need more evidence. After strengthening nearly all year as investors piled onto the greenback looking for safety, the US dollar index started weakening in May and will likely post its first monthly loss all year. The dollar index measures the US dollar against a basket of major global currencies, and since the dollar and US treasury bonds are generally considered among the safest of the safe haven assets, we watch them closely. And maybe just maybe, the capital markets are sniffing some better news out of the economy. The Commerce Department reported on Friday that the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, that's the PCE price index, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, rose just 0.2% in April, down from a gain of 0.9% for March. That's yet another sign that inflation may have peaked here in the United States. The report also showed spending by U.S. consumers continued to grow in April, with expenditures rising 0.9% last month. But, and it's a big but, households were also dipping into their savings accounts to deal with rising costs. That and credit card balances are starting to swell again. It's never a good sign when credit card interest rates are rising. Consumer expectations for inflation for the next 12 months? 5.3%. 
High prices are standard these days, my friends. You know how financial media types like me always say, don't look at your 401k in good times and in bad. We don't really mean it. At least I don't, which is why I never really say it anymore. You should look at it. Don't obsess over it. Just make sure you're comfortable with your allocations, you have a plan, and you know your risk parameters. Anyway, I was looking at your 401ks, mine too, through Fidelity's latest survey, and according to FIDO, our retirement plans took a hit in the first quarter. The average IRA balance was $127,000 in the first quarter, a 6% drop from the fourth quarter. The average 401k balance fell 7% to $121,700. Most retirement investors did not make significant changes to their allocations, says Fidelity. They stayed the course. Did you? We know the markets fell a lot further in the second quarter, about 8% further for the S&P 500. Did you flinch or did you move into the winning sectors? Here they are so far this year in case you haven't been keeping score. We've been keeping score. Energy is up 58%. Utilities up 5%. Consumer staples down 3%. Materials down 6%. Healthcare down 6%. Financials down 10%. Weird in a rising rate environment. Industrials down 11%. Real estate down 15%. Tech 22% down. Communications, those are your internet stocks, down 25%. And consumer discretionary, down 28%. If you think we're going back to the same dynamic of 2020 and 2021, think again. Interest rates are rising and the economy is slowing. The easy money's gone. Ya se fue. But that doesn't mean that oversold sectors won't claw back some gains and overbought sectors won't cool down. But the next few years won't be characterized by red-hot growth and an accommodative Federal Reserve unless we're headed into a recession, of course, and then all bets are off. The game has changed. Allocate appropriately. Let's get set up for a short but busy week ahead. It will be a shortened trading week here in the U.S. as markets were closed for the Memorial Day holiday. Asian and European markets traded higher on Monday. On Tuesday, investors can expect the latest update on home prices in the U.S. with the release of the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index for March. There are also several important economic indicators scheduled for release, including PMI surveys, consumer confidence, of course, and key updates to the labor market. On Wednesday, we'll get the latest JOLT survey. That's the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. And on on Thursday, we'll get the ADP private sector payrolls report. Then Friday, the May non-farm payrolls report, the jobs report. Economists are expecting around 325,000 jobs added last month, which would be about 100,000 or so less than last month. And the unemployment rate should stay around 3.6%. But pay attention to what companies are saying in their earnings reports and guidance this week. Both Microsoft and Twitter said they plan to slow their hiring plans last week, and other companies may follow suit if they feel a slowdown coming. First quarter earnings report reports are nearly done, though we'll get a few results this week from companies including Salesforce, HP, Chewy, GameStop, Broadcom, and Lululemon, among others. On the international and commodities front, EU countries are meeting this week to discuss a partial ban of Russian oil. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine entering its fifth month, the pressure is mounting on countries to sever their petro ties with Russia. While a full ban is not expected, an embargo of seaborne deliveries is on the table. OPEC is also expected to meet this week to discuss output plans, but don't expect any significant increases. OPEC nations love the price of oil above $100 per barrel. Speaking of oil profits, the UK introduced the 25% windfall oil and gas tax last Thursday. Prime Minister Boris Johnson Johnson's conservative government became the first to put into action an argument that the energy industry has profited too much from a surge in commodity prices that are stoking inflation. About £5 billion is expected to be raised, which will finance a one-time payment of £650 to about 8 million of the poorest households in the United Kingdom. Wealth transfer in full effect. And keep your eyes on Alphabet this week. The parent company of Google and YouTube is facing 17 shareholder resolutions this week at its annual meeting. That's about twice as many as last year. 
One of those resolutions is calling for an audit at the company to help address the effects, bias, or inequality with Google Search, its algorithms, artificial intelligence technology, and other products. And give it up for Top Gun and Tom Cruise. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. Maverick is back, and he put the fannies in the seats this past weekend. Top Gun Maverick pulled in $124 million in domestic box office sales over the Memorial Day weekend, the biggest opening ever for Tom Cruise, who has generated over $4 billion in box office sales in his career. Pretty big numbers for someone operating outside the Marvel Universe. Even though the sellers took a breather last week, it still doesn't feel like we're on terra firma in the capital markets these days. The stock market has been rather unpredictable lately. Not that it ever really isn't, but investor sentiment is ultra sensitive right now. We need some grounding and we need some common sense. So I reached back out to our pal Lindsay Bell, the chief markets and money strategist at Ally. It is so good to have you back on The Express, my friend. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I was reading your terrific blog on Ally and you list five signs of a market bottom. I want to rip through them with you and do a little breakdown and see whether or not we can feel whether we're getting near it, whether we just had it. Impossible to tell. So let's get let's do a few of these if you don't mind. Are you ready? Sure. You talk about the spike in the VIX and I've been looking at the VIX pretty closely as well. It's high, but it's not screaming like a two-year-old that dropped its ice cream cone. It hasn't been above 35 or 40 during this big sell-off. Does that mean the worst is yet to come or that it's kind of elevated and it may come down from here? Yeah, I mean, that has been the biggest question mark, I think, in the five signs that I talk about is the the VIX. You usually see, like you just mentioned, a move above 45 usually means we're kind of getting to the end of this volatile period and the worst could be behind us. We haven't seen that happen last week. We've actually seen the VIX come down as the market rose. So maybe the worst is behind us. We we haven't seen a massive spike like we have during the days of the pandemic-driven recession or even the great financial crisis where we got to over 80. So maybe the worst is behind us. It's hard to say. There's no tech with all of these things that I'm looking at. You just look at history for guidance, but there is no textbook role. So you've got to look at a bunch of different things together and, and not everything moves the same way at the same time either. So unfortunately, it's a little more of a, a feel than it is a quantitative definition. No doubt about it. Art more than science at this point in time or just the feel for it. But I I love these. Puts sharply outnumbering calls. Another sign. We talked about this on the show last week. Haven't seen a ton of puts outnumbering calls. So you don't see a huge downside bet against the markets, a further downside bet against the markets like you normally think you might in an unwinding like the one we bet in. What is it telling you? Yeah. And and we've actually recently seen the, the puts versus call ratio come in a little bit more too. So again, we didn't reach super extreme levels yet, but we did reach levels not really seen since the pandemic driven drama in in the stock market. So again, maybe this is just a flushing out, a correction that the market hasn't had in a long time. It certainly raised investor anxiety. And I think that we got close to extreme levels, but no cigar here either. Yep. I totally agree. But it seems kind of orderly, the unwinding here. The, and then also another one, few stocks trading above their moving average. Hey, there was a time and it wasn't that long ago, six, seven, eight, nine months ago, a year ago, where most stocks were trading above their moving averages, their 200 or their 50. Everything was going up. Everything was like a helium balloon. Not the case lately. Most stocks, especially the big techs, the large caps, not trading above their moving average, except for the oil stocks, of course. 
What is that telling you? Yeah, usually what we like to see is a good amount of stocks trading above their 50-day average. It means momentum is to the upside. When the opposite is happening, when there's less stocks trading above their 200-day moving average, momentum is to the downside. And when those numbers get um, pretty pessimistic in the single digits, say, we could be reaching a period of, of final capitulation, potential washout. We never quite got there. We got in the 20 to 30% range of, of, of stocks trading above that 200-day moving average, which is, it's still kind of in, stuck in neutral territory there. But it doesn't, if you're looking at individual securities, it certainly didn't feel that way because there's a lot of stocks that that dropped very, very participously and very hard and were, were way lower than the, say, your correction or even bear market below the bear market territory of 20%. So it definitely hasn't felt comfortable. And I know you talk about, a lot of people talk about this sell-off that we've been going through. It's been kind of orderly. It hasn't been too, too dramatic, but it hasn't felt great for the average investor, right? When you're seeing individual securities and even the market move as fast as it does in a single day up or down, it can be quite nerve-wracking. Yeah, I know what you mean. But at the same time, it feels like, and the data supports it, investors, especially retail investors, long-term investors, have kind of stayed put in their index funds, stayed put with their ETFs. You don't see a lot of trading going on, a lot of churn going on in the passive portfolio, in the passive indexing going on. And maybe that's why it feels orderly. Maybe it's the institutions unwinding a ton of bets here. We don't have that retail participation we had during the meme stock mania of last year. So is that maybe what's going on here? Just this passive, let it fall, let it correct, and I'm just going to have to go through the market cycle type of mentality? And you know what we've seen at Ally Invest in, in our data? Absolutely, we're starting to see a little bit of softness in trading data in that they are taking a bit of a breather here. But at the same time, since the start of the year, what we've seen is that our customers have shifted the mix of their portfolio from individual securities or individual stocks into ETFs. And that's not necessarily an unusual thing in periods of uncertainty where you see investors shift into ETFs, which are that passive type of investing. They're more diversified, less worry, less anxiety surrounding them. You can kind of take your hand off the ball there and and let it ride. We've seen that trend since January. Like I said, while people are stepping away from maybe the more risky trades or the more speculative trades, you're also seeing it in options activity. There's a lot less there's been a major drop off from the number of customers that are trading options on stocks at the peak of the pandemic to now. And so I think some of the speculation is coming out of the market. And that is a good thing. And I think for newer, younger investors that are in it for the long haul, they're planning for retirement, they're planning for some goal that's 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Passive investing can be a very, very good way to achieve those goals. It's also a great way to just get started in investing and get used to the wild swings in the market, you know, because you have that fallback of diversification, which has been, again, it's been uncomfortable because the market's falling just as individual stocks are falling too, but it's falling less so. And the performance of passive investors, as you know, has outperformed active investors for quite a long time. Yeah. We just sang the praises of Jack Bogle on last week's show, talking with Eric Baltrunas in his new book. So we know we know what it's like. If you're in it for the long haul, it's usually the, the smoother road, but it is the tortoise versus the hare type of thing. All right. You also talk about the wide difference between risky and safe haven bond yields. 
bond market has been very peculiar, but we know a lot of money's been hiding in U.S. government treasuries because people are thinking about worrying about a recession. They know rates are rising. All these things are happening. What are you seeing there with the difference between those risky and safe haven yields? Yeah. And so risky in this definition could be high grade corporate bonds too. A lot of market participants like to look at where those yields are trading versus the treasury bonds, but also on high yield fixed income versus treasury bonds too. And the spread there can get quite wide versus what the treasury is trading at. And this one can be a little bit difficult for your average everyday investor to understand, but it's just really a difference in in yields of these types of corporate bonds versus the treasury, which is you know backed by the full faith and security of the, the US government. Those haven't gotten as wide as we've seen it in past periods of crises. Yes, they continue to move a little bit higher, but still nowhere near extreme ranges. Usually, you know, in the past, we've seen an 8% difference between high yield fixed income and the treasury. Right now, we're about four and a half, five percent 5%. So still ways off there, which is a very good thing because, you know, as you know, you hear the old adage that the bond market's the smart money, right? They're, they're the ones that really know what's going on. So that's a, another one of my favorite ones to just keep an eye on, especially especially for those people that are really only invested in or primarily focusing their investing on stocks or the equity markets, just keeping tabs on the bond market and other markets in general. It's a really smart thing to do just to get a holistic picture of what's going on in the marketplace. No doubt. It's all connected. Stocks get all the showtime, but bonds really run things around here. That's where the real money is. All right. Dismal investor sentiment. We know looking at the American Association of Independent Investors, their their survey, their bullish bearer survey, investors are pretty bearish. And usually that's a turning point. That's usually the sign when things start to turn around, when things, you know, the darkest, that's when we start to see the light. Is that what we're seeing with the sentiment surveys? Not just there, but the CNN Money, Fear, and Greed Index. I know the Investopedia Anxiety Index is hot, not as hot as it's been, but a lot of these individual investor sentiment surveys are telling us people are pretty dire. Is that usually a good sign? Yeah, it's usually a contrarian sign. Usually when every normal person out there gets very bearish, very nervous about the market, it, it can be an indicator that things are bottoming. The worst could potentially be behind us. And if we look at the AAII, American Association of Individual Investors, if, if we look at their weekly report, bulls versus bears, that really peaked from a negative perspective in late April. It's still very bearish by historical standards, and it's been very bearish for quite a while now. So we could start to hopefully see, especially after last week's turn in the market, if that, or stabilization, maybe I should say, (laughs) in the market, if that continues for the weeks ahead, you could probably see the bulls win some ground here. But it's hard to say, again, we got super, super negative and the contrarian indicator It's taken a while to really set in and say that this is the time, this is the bottom, this is where you should start putting more money to work. And that's just the thing. We can't know when the bottom happens until it's formed, until you get that real support several days in a row buying. We saw a little bit of that last week, but it's not a trend. And Lindsay, you and I know this, and I think everybody that pays attention knows this, we're not going back to where we were. We're not going back to zero interest rates, right? We're not going back to inflation below 2%, not for a long time. We're not going back to all the wind at at the backs of risky assets, which was pushing a lot of investors into the market, whether it was those that extra money during the pandemic 
or whether there was nothing else to do or whether there was just this attraction because of those dynamics, it's not going back to the way it was, but it is going into a new dynamic. So given that and what we're facing, what are the new rules and principles investors should be focused on, especially those that have that 10-year or more time horizon, Lindsay? Yeah. It's a massive change in the winds that retail investors that everybody is facing right now. So like you said, we've had the wind at our back for a very long time. And a lot of newer investors haven't experienced a true rising rate environment. Many people that have been in the market for a while now haven't experienced high inflation levels. And even if the data is starting to show a little bit of a waning potentially in inflation. The question is how quickly can that come down and how quickly do we get back to that 2% level? The Fed is clearly interested and committed to being very aggressive to help slow demand. You're already starting to see demand and growth begin to show signs of slowing now, just simply because what's happened in the bond market with interest rates already, as well as what we're seeing in inflation. So you're starting to see the impact on demand. Just look at what all you have to do is, uh, for primary focus is, is look at, at the bond market. But the good news is that the consumer still remains very healthy. The question mark is, is how long can the consumer continue to absorb these higher inflationary prices and dig into their savings, right? We saw last week, we got the um, PCE personal consumption data, and it was a positive sign that the consumer has been able to, again, absorb and withstand the higher prices of things. But that's not going to last forever. And I think that's really what investors are concerned about, and which is why you see a lot of different knee-jerk reactions in the market over the last couple of weeks, especially as retailers reported earnings. The question is, the consumer's holding up well now, how long does it last? Now, how long does it last? We're seeing credit card balances rise, obviously, the savings rate coming down. Now, it's not going to be as high as it was, again, two years ago, a year and a half ago, because of those government distributions. So not a lot of discretionary wealth. And the money, the extra money, a lot of it's going into the gas tank, a lot of it's going in to fill the fridge. Um, you can't deny that. We're paying $5,000 a year on average as a household for gas now, up from $2,800 a year last year. Things change, right? So, okay, we're, this is a new. This is the new new normal. If you're investing in this environment again with that horizon, are you thinking about a barbell approach here? Are you thinking about we're not? You know, the the growth days of hot tech are over for now. So if you're looking to grow and you want a little risk, what do you do? Yeah, I think I've been saying for a while now, it's you've got to have that diversification. You've got to look at and consider a barbell approach because especially at this point in time, having high quality in your portfolio, this the last several months has been a reminder of why you need to have diversification. You can't simply just rely on what's working and what what the hottest stocks are. Of course, there's different strategies around that, momentum strategies and things like that. But for the average investor, the average person, having a barbell barbell approach, having significant diversification can work well in your favor, especially for a long-term time horizon. So on, on the safer side of things, on the more defensive side, what I've been looking at is dividend paying securities. I always like to look at the dividend aristocrats because if you look at that from a long period of time, well, there may be periods of slowness. We're not beating the benchmark every single year. What you do see over the long time is with compounding of those dividends is you do end up eventually significantly outperforming if you're willing to, if you're in it for the long haul. That doesn't mean you're, if you're young, your whole portfolio should not be in that, but it's a, it's a good defensive 
position to have within your portfolio. Also, we're in the summer months, as you know, Caleb, this is the slower period uh, for the for the market. And the defensive sectors typically do well. Healthcare is one area that I take a look at from a defensive approach there. On the other side, now growth is still growth at the end of the day. And the growth looks a lot different than it did in say 2000. So when the hot tech stocks back then were barely making any money and being valued off of insane multiples, eyeballs and different things like that, valuations for the tech sector, for some of the stalwarts within the tech sector that have solid growth plans and and significant cash flow that isn't being negatively impacted by the current slowdown in the market. I think those are some areas that you can start to look at right now and start to pick at because we've just seen a lot of these names, if you look at them, have done a full round trip to valuations. and Well, maybe not valuations. Valuations are still a little bit hot, but they're getting closer. But from a price perspective, they've done a round trip to back to where they were pre-pandemic. And while, while growth has been pulled forward for a lot of these names, it hasn't completely disappeared. And we as a society are becoming significantly more... Um, uh, entrenched in 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 technology and everything is becoming you know integrated from a tech perspective and all that. So I think some of the you have to be selective um, and you might not be able to just buy the sector outright anymore, but being selective and finding individual opportunities within the growth of your places within tech, I think there is still opportunity. And then I also think that we're going through a period of slowdown and what happens after a slowdown? Once we get onto the other side of this, you can start to look for for some of the value-oriented plays that typically do well at the beginning of an economic cycle. So that's kind of the playbook as I see it right now. Yeah, it's a rebuilding. It's a re. Uh, it's a chance to reset, and you're getting in at some discount or some leveled off prices, as Aunt Jane said on last week's show. Things kind of reverted to the mean, didn't they? They sure did, to say the least. Okay, let's talk about folks that are either in retirement or the pre-retirement folks. Lindsay, that whole sixty forty approach used to be the way to go. Portfolios were somewhat efficient. You kind of de-risk over time as you get closer or into retirement. You still believe in that? Are you still counseling folks on that? Or how should those people think about the next 10 years of their ability to build wealth in the capital markets? Yeah, it's a question, you know, even my parents are asking me this right there in retirement and they're looking at their portfolio and they're wondering if they should be shifting more of it into fixed income. But you look at the performance of fixed income and it's not been the stabilizer or the the safe haven that it has historically been. So I think we have to think about it differently. And I think it depends on what, what point you are at and how close you are to retirement or if you are in retirement. And I think at this point in time, it's going to be a tough slog for a lot of aspects of the uh, fixed income complex. And so I think with keeping that in mind, you need to consider areas where you're going to be able to see high yields in the most safe and efficient manner. And so I think that the, there is, like I talked about, I think you got to think consider that fixed income portion of your portfolio. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the tr- traditional sense of fixed income. You should still have some of that for safety's sake, but I think that you can consider other alternatives to fixed income that are very close to fixed income, like whether that's real estate or utilities. I think that's one area you can look at within the equity market as well as dividend high dividend, like I said, the, the aristocrats, like t- I talked about that earlier. I also think that you're, if, if you're in retirement, considering I bonds at this point in time too, 
you can only invest $10,000 a year, but it's something to consider. And you have to stay invested in, in a security like that for at least a year to not lose the interest that you're earning. But if you believe that interest rates are going to remain above historically low levels for a long period of time, excuse me, inflation, I said interest rates, I meant inflation. I think that this is a product that you can use. It's again, going to be a very small portion of your portfolio, but it's something to consider to help diversify. Great advice there. All right. Last thing, Lindsay, on the way out here, what's one key thing you're going to be watching over the next six months or as we head into the summer? Is it the consumer? What's that key indicator, the Lindsay Bell indicator that we should focus on too, that's just going to give us that that temperature reading on which way this whole thing is headed? You know, for me, it really is the consumer. I've always turned to the consumer and I think it's probably part of my background because I used to cover retail stocks way back in the day, but the consumer represents the vast majority of our economic growth, right? And I think the consumer has been telling us all year, as, as worried as investors have been, about the trajectory of growth, the consumer has been standing on solid footing. And I'm going to continue to watch some of those indicators that we talked about earlier, whether it's the savings rate or the debt to income rate, as well as just cash at banks and deposit accounts and and consumer confidence, because the consumer has been saying one thing and doing another thing. So you got to keep an eye on retail sales. You got to keep an eye on consumption. And then you also, to offset that, have to take into consideration what, what inflation is doing. We are also operating in an environment where the job market is one of the best job markets in our lifetime too. So that is a significant support to the consumer. There are question marks whether you're going to start to see some weakness there as corporations start to rein in their spending and think about their profit margins from a different type of perspective. But to the extent that they need the help and they need employees, and there's this massive shift amongst employees and and amongst industries, I think the consumer could come out and continue to win. Wages are growing, and you just got to take all that into into consideration. It really comes down to the health of the consumer because the consumer's actions won't lie. And they, again, are the heartbeat of our economy. Yeah, you said it. And they have been saying one thing and doing another. Consumer sentiment at a 10-year low, spending is hung in there. So your great point, great points as usual. And I feel better just having spoken to you, feeling a lot more grounded, feeling a lot more relaxed. I thank you so much for joining us again, Lindsay Bell, the Chief Market and Money Strategist for Ally. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes from my pal, Frank Holland, a terrific reporter and anchor at CNBC. Frank recommends capitulatory this week. And while that precise word is not in our glossary, it stems from capitulation, of course, and we haven't quite seen full capitulation or a throwing in the towel from investors quite yet. Well, according to my favorite website, capitulation happens when a significant proportion of investors succumbs to fear and sells over a short period of time, causing the price of a security or the market to drop shortly amid high trading volume. We usually get a relief rally after a period of capitulation. So is that what we saw last week? Trading volumes and volatility are both relative low right now, which makes us think investors have yet to capitulate. But maybe they won't like they did in 2020, 2018, or 2009. We have to see some follow through on the stock market trends this week. If it turns higher, the base may be in place. If it fails, look out below. Good suggestion, Frank. We're sending you a pair of Investopedia's finest socks, and we'd like to see those featured on CNBC the next time you're in the anchor chair. 
We're going to let the great Lou Mannheim from Wall Street take us out this week since we let Gordon Gecko ring us in. Here's Mannheim, played by the legendary actor Hal Holbrook, giving Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, of course, a little Wall Street life lesson. What's going on, Bud? You know something? Remember, there are no shortcuts, son. Quick buck artists come and go with every bull market, but the steady players make it through the bear markets. You're a part of something here, bud. The money you make for people creates science and research jobs. Don't sell that out. Who like Lou says, and be a steady player. And thanks for riding with us this week and every week here on The Express. You'll find the show notes, links, and transcripts on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. And if you like Investopedia in your ears, check out our other podcast, The Green Investor, where we're exploring what it means to be an environmentally conscious investor in 2022 and where that investing theme is headed in the future. Rate, review, and recommend this podcast if you can, and send us feedback to podcast at Investopedia.com. We love feedback. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line line.